Thank you for tuning into the Pastor Soapbox. I am your host, Seymour Heligar. I do want to let you know that this episode is probably going to be a few minutes longer than the average of 35 minutes that we, we prefer. Uh, but we, we do want to talk about this in, in a, a very, um, very serious, sobering topic. And we want to give it the right treatment. So I do trust that you will, will give it the, the hour or so that we think this will take to work through the issues that we're finding. And as we discover and uncover uh, the problems in our times. This is, as I said, episode 19 of the Pastor Soapbox, and, and the title is Unity Redefined. Unity Redefined, a sweet taste for bitter souls. Uh, we, we're going to look at this. Is this sweetness good, right, godly? Um, and the soul being bitter, is, is that bitterness justifiably true or acceptable? Now, we know we talk about feelings and we talk about emotions, but our feelings, our emotions, our narratives, our stories must always submit themselves to the ultimate power and authority. And that is the word of the living God. That is true for the Christian. Now, for the unbeliever, we, we do not expect that submissive complicity. Uh, we only expect that from the believer. But there there is a trend in I want to look at a sermon that was preached by uh, a pastor, uh, Charlie Dates, to show you that trend and, and why it's a problem. And the title of his sermon was What Keeps Black Churches and White Churches Separated in America. What Keeps Black Churches and White Churches Separated in America. It was a sermon that he preached on Black History Month. And by the time you've heard this podcast, it would have been almost two months that he preached this, or actually almost three months. Um, he preached it February the 14th, 2021. From the 17th chapter of John, which is our Savior's, what we call high priestly prayer. And uh, also he attached another text, Amos chapter 3, verse 3. I do not recall that he ever read or explained that passage and, and its correlation to John 17. Uh, but th those were the, the two passages uh, that were at the forefront of uh, his talk that Sunday morning. Now, let me just say this about preaching. I would respectfully, respectfully reserve that true biblical preaching um, is textually derived exegetically applied and expositionally driven. The reason why I'm saying that is as you listen to that sermon, and I would encourage you to go to the YouTube and, and the Church's Progressive Baptist Church, go to their website and pull up that sermon. And if you listen to it, there's some issues of, of, of textual faithfulness, exegetical application, and also the exposition of that text. I would say that uh, Dates pulpit delivery that day was more like reading a text from the scripture and then offering a TED talk. Now, this is in no way uh, attacking him as a person. I want you to understand that clearly. So I think it's important to, to set this journey so we, we are clear on what the objective is. The overall goal is to show how the weaving of ungodly ideologies or beliefs will enter the mind, move the heart, affects the will, and then it will stand boldly in the pulpit. Uh, he, he had uh, stressed that, uh, you know, he says, you know, at Progressive, we don't shower from the difficult topics. 
And although this topic is difficult for some, it's really not that difficult if it's handled faithfully. And I would argue that it was not. Now, I would also add that um, when I speak, I'm going to use the categories of black and white without ever agreeing with their legitimacy. Uh, if you have heard my argument in the past, I believe that social or natural constructs not derived from scripture are merely making our arguments difficult and more on an unbelieving level than a believing level. Furthermore, I am unpersuaded that terms like racism or racist or even anti-racist are practical or even helpful, but I will use them for the sake of argument, not agreement. I will use them for the sake of argument, but not agreement. And then let me reiterate what I said earlier. I want to make this abundantly clear. I am not attacking and I will not attack Pastor Dates personally. Now, in his uh, tweet, we had a tweet little uh, battle or context con contest with Virgil Walker. And uh, Virgil Walker just made a very, I think, profound statement against CRT and, and how dangerous it is. And then um, Pastor Dates made a series of attacks on his character and never repented of it. Uh, th that, is, that is not a mark of a faithful person. And, and so we don't want to do those things. Dates was wrong. It's okay for us to go back and forth with the issues, but character assassination, calling people uh, Uncle Tom or Ruckus, um, although some of those uh, intonations may be a compliment, in context, it is actually not godly or helpful. That's not my goal. I am addressing content, not attacking character. So as I said that I will use the terms racist or racism for the sake of argument, not agreement, I'm going to be very clear. I am addressing content, not attacking character. I respect Pastor Charlie Dates from a distance as I disagree with him from the same distance. I will only show you from his admission while in the pulpit that CRT, political race theory, social justice, and other similar concepts are deadly. And when you agree with them, you will do nothing but speak what you believe and as I worked through Pastor Dates' sermon that he preached on February the 14th of 2021, he did just that. He, he applied those ideologies to the sermon in an incriminating way. Now, if you don't know who he is, Pastor Charlie Dates uh, is the, the, the lead pastor of Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, he received this training uh, from... Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, he is, from what I know, a solid speaker. I first heard him preach an audio version of it uh, back, I believe, in, in 2012. And so he's a, he's a tremendous orator, and his ministry works to improve the spiritual and material life of those under their care uh, in the surrounding area of Chicago. Now, his training confirms that to some extent he knows how to approach the text using the appropriate methods. But Char Charlie Dates also makes a defense for his dual method or a dual method, and it is the application of black hermeneutics with traditional hermeneutics. So it, it is the man who was, who was taught, skilled, trained, 
he, he applies not only the traditional hermeneutics, but also black hermeneutics to the context uh, he serves. Now I'll explain how that hermeneutic works in a bit, but it is safe for us to conclude that his hermeneutic is similar to that of men like James Cone. Uh, James Cone, or the late James Cone, is or was one of the pioneers of black liberation theology. And all he did was really give it a face, give it an identity. He really gave the black hermeneutic an identity, and it is therefore called black liberation theology. I really don't see much of a distinction between the two because uh, maybe the black hermeneutic focuses more on the black experience. But unfortunately, it is much like the black liberation theology, which focuses primarily on the black experience. So we can safely deduce from this that the black hermeneutic is flawed uh, because its process, it is inverted. By that, I mean it begins with the struggling, not necessarily the guilty sinner. It's the struggling black man, black woman, not the guilty sinner. So the struggling class of blacks, this is the focus. And so as, as we think about that, the, the approach to the interpretation of scripture, therefore, is inverted and it is wrong. And that, that's really the sense of a hermeneutic is, is the, the, the scientific method that you use to, to deduce the truth or gain the truth from the scripture. Um, it is a scientific method or a process for interpreting the text of scripture. For example, biblical hermeneutics, the right one begins with the text. It wants to get an understanding of the single meaning and explaining that meaning in its original setting. If it's written in the first century AD, the context, the history, the grammar, the grammars used in that time, you're defining what the word means in that time because the meaning of the words, the meaning of the phrase, the meaning of the text is the meaning of the text and that doesn't change. And so the preacher takes the, the audience to the time of the writing, the reason for it, its implication and how it applied to the church at that time. And then he draws from that the timeless truths from that text of scripture. From that single meaning comes the timeless truths. And so he leads the listener from ancient history to contemporary time, from past to present. And then uh, the preacher transitions to stress the implication of that truth upon the listener, that is, what bearing does this text have on my life? What is God saying to me from that passage for my growth in my knowledge and worship of him? What is he saying from this text in its original setting, its single meaning that is to transform the way I think and live and glorify God? And so that's the implication. Then the final stage is the process of application. Now, how do I uh, put boots to that truth and flesh it out in my marriage, in my parenting, in my occupation, in my sanctification of putting off sin? How does this apply to my life in Christ? Now, let me interject, though, that, uh, that um, some passages are descriptive. Others are prescriptive. Some describe, others prescribe. Um, not every verse is, I would say, directly applied. There's some passages that we can gain principles from. Others we can gain insights 
as we examine the life of the people of God. Of course, we know that everything that we read and study, it leads to Christ, either the points to him or speak of him. But it may not always be directly applicable to us to do it, go and do likewise. Now, the problem with the black hermeneutic among many, or I would say a problem, is that many preachers have wrongly attempted to apply everything directly. Uh, for example, black, the black hermeneutic believes that black people can identify with the struggles the people of God faced. So people are divided, not according to their relationship in the first Adam, which is sin and death and, and damnation, nor then the class of their new identity with the second Adam, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, the issue in black liberation theology and also in the black hermeneutic is, is no longer of sin as much as it is the oppressed blacks under the tyranny of the oppressors. And the oppressors are none other than the white people. And we can get, gain a, a bird's eye view when we evaluate our call him the godfather of, of the black hermeneutic. He, he gave it shape, more definition. He wasn't the founder of it. I think it developed over the years just through slavery and oppression. Uh, but it was James Cone. Um, because what Cone formulated and what Pastor Dates will do in part is to reverse, as I said earlier, the process. Let me bring that home to us a bit more as I read a quote. And this is as from an article by uh, Diana Hayes. She wrote, and I quote, James's starting point is not a method, but a people. And this is from her article, and it's called James Cones' Hermeneutic of Language and Black Theology. So there's, there's a, a grammatical approach to this. There's a hermeneutic, there's the language, the grammar, then there's the history, and the history is the blacks. And it is here of language and black theology. She says uh, his, his starting point is not a method, but a people. The lived experience of an oppressed and marginalized group. Thus, his emphasis is not on method, but on praxis. She, she expounds on that a bit more by saying the act of doing theology in a viable manner is what it is. It is orthopraxis. It is living out or living one's faith in the world. That is the first step. Reflection on that action, the second step, results in theology. So you build your theology and experience and, and you develop your own theology based on experience. So it is not just inverted. That's an understatement. It is perverted. It is a perverted process and it misses the entire, not just the part, but the entire goal of scripture. Because once you, you, you start with men, you do not begin with God. For the grand narrative of scripture is about the glory of God, the kingdom of God through his son, Jesus Christ. If you do not begin with that, then you, you no longer have a sound hermeneutic. You no longer have true worship. You have idolatry. So let me just kind of uh, convey to you, if I may, at least four detriments to using this method. Number one, it tends to oversimplify scripture. It tends to oversimplify scripture. Number two, it tends to overemphasize the black struggle. 
Number three, it treats the oppressor's suffering like that of Christ, and that is a great offense. Number four, it eliminates the chief focus of Scripture, the triune God, and sets the spotlight on a specific people group. Professor James Cone, the late Cone, he wrote a book, and the title was The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And, and that book is a prime example of this hermeneutical, what I call a hermeneutical apostasy. And so instead of reading this book, I, I'd listen to his video because I would have to buy the book. I didn't want to buy the book. Uh, I try to grab excerpts, you know, even magazine articles that are free. I just don't like to buy too many of these books and support uh, these movements. I'm not saying it's wrong to do so. I prefer to, to get a free copy of, of, of a bad contribution than pay for a copy of a bad contribution. So I listened to his video just to get some insight, some idea of, of what he's referring to. But listen to this, and I quote this from the YouTube link to the cross and the lynching tree. I believe he spoke this somewhere in Tampa Bay, Florida, many years ago. He said, I speak and write out of a deep theological conviction that the true power of the Christian gospel is its unambiguous call for liberation from the forces of oppression and a fierce and uncompromising condemnation of those who oppress. There's more. Cohn says he also speaks for gays, lesbians, bisexuals, and those who are transgender, the queer people of the world. Sounds familiar? Yes, it's, it's critical race theory, intersectionality, and the Equality Act, same goal. This comes from black liberation theology because there's, there's some oppression going on. The homosexuals are being oppressed. Women are being oppressed. And so you have this growing category of the marginalized. And the more you're marginalized uh, is, is the more oppressed that you are. And that's intersectionality. Uh, you, you can be marginalized if you're female. Okay, you can add more to this marginalization if you are a black female. Not to mention if you're a black female who's a homosexual. So uh, the, the more decks of marginalizational categories you have in your favor, uh, is the more oppressed you are. That's the that's almost like the the crown jewel of suffering. Is the more sinful your disposition may be, the more glorious uh, it is in the light of intersectionality. Well, Cohn says this, and I'm going to quote this. He says, "Until we see the cross and the lynching tree together, where blacks were." were brutally killed and hung on a tree. Listen to this carefully. He's, he's matching the sacrifice of Christ with those who were lynched. And I'm not downplaying the lynchings. They were evil, but nothing compares to the cross. Nothing compares to the sacrifice of our Savior under the wrath of a just and a holy God. Okay, well, let me continue. He says, until, because what I just said is not what he quoted. But let me tell you what he quoted. Until we can identify Christ with the re-crucified body hanging from a lynching tree or a gay body on a picket fence, there can be no genuine understanding of Christian identity in America or the world and no deliverance from the brutal legacy of slavery and white supremacy and homophobia. 
And I end the quote there at that point. But did you hear that? Did you hear that? Until we can identify with the sufferings of those who are depraved and turned over in their sin and rebellion, we cannot understand Christianity. And until we embrace everyone without telling them to repent and believe in the gospel, America will never be freed from its legacy of historical slavery, so-called white supremacy that they believe is still rampant in homophobia. So refusal to accept people who willfully indulge in a way of life that God does not approve of makes us worse than the men and women who hung black folk and trees and failure to see the cross and the lynching tree as uh, some uh, what parallel is failed to truly understand the Christian faith. This is blasphemous, blasphemous. But unfortunately, the message of inclusion, along with black liberation, is what the Black Lives Matter movements are aiming for. Let me just say this. I mean, one thing to receive people to our places of worship warmly, but is another thing to accept them as a part of the body of Christ when they refuse to denounce their way of life, deny themselves, turn from this and that is repent, turn to God, trusting in Christ alone for their salvation and taking up their cross and following the Lord daily by putting off their sins and putting on the virtues of Christ. It's two different worlds. To say that we care for every human being created in the image of God, to speak the truth to them in love, but to say, well, we accept them all, no matter how you live your life, without realizing that the scripture says, if any man be in Christ, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he's a new creation in Christ. He says, the scripture says, behold, the old is gone and the new has come. And he says, all of this is from God. Because when God reconciles us to himself through Christ, he gives us new affections for holy living. I'm not so according to James Cone. We assert and we, we say this authoritatively as scripture states that salvation produces new affections and new direction. Immoral desires and ambitions are no longer the way of life. Well, unfortunately, James Cone did not believe that. And the heart of black liberation theology and its hermeneutic was not and is not in harmony with salvation and holy living. And whenever a liberation from the white man's oppression is the ultimate salvation in heaven, you are hijacking the name of Christ and attaching a different plan to it. Nothing James proposed has anything to do with the authentic gospel message. But that is the mold of black liberation theology and the black hermeneutic. They're intertwined and dangerously so. I mean, we can say that in the past when the blacks, and remember I'm using the term black and white for the sake of argument, not agreement. But there was a history when that was comforting for them. It helped them, but it's like a tutor. It's like the law. It serves as a tutor. It is unuseful when you've come to a fuller knowledge of, of how to apply the scripture faithfully. So then what is a better hermeneutic? Uh, a better hermeneutic is the, the grammatical historical method. There are various ways of saying it. Some would say the, the grammatical uh, historical, I will say the grammatical historical method. That's, I think, is still fair enough. 
Uh, former Master Seminary and the late Dr. Thomas defines this method as a study designed to discover the meaning of a text that is dictated or governed by the principles of grammar and the fact of history. So it, it, it is not different from any other method, but this method is, a, is assigned to the principles of grammar, which you don't change, and the fact of history. But then Dr. Thomas includes an essential element to understanding scripture. There, there is just the natural process which the scripture and, and sound principles never negates or bypasses. But then there's another element that the world does not have. So we will use this hermeneutic of the grammatical historical, but then there's another element and that element distinguishes itself from the world and it is the work of the Holy Spirit. The person in the work of the Holy Spirit is actively involved in the process of helping us understand the meaning, the single meaning of the text, because he was actively involved in recording the single meaning of the text. So it is, as Dr. Thomas writes, a study of inspired scripture designed to discover under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the meaning of the text dictated by the principles of grammar and the fact of history. And you see how he brings it together. It is the guidance of the Holy Spirit, not experience, not black experience, not black hermeneutics, not black liberation theology, but it is the guidance of the authoritative Holy Spirit. He helps us to discover the meaning of the text dictated by the principles of grammar and the fact of history. And I end that quote. Well, the black hermeneutic is missing those elements. It's missing the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. And, and it is missing the right method that is faithful to the text itself. Because it... In order to be faithful to the word of God in the text, it demands a respect for the authorial intent, the student's diligence, and the Holy Spirit's illuminating grace to understand you. You can't have a historical intent of, of blacks or whites. And you, you may say, well, you know, the white man used the Bible to justify his position. It doesn't mean that his hermeneutic is acceptable. In the same way, it doesn't mean that this present hermeneutic is acceptable. It's just not acceptable. So I will argue that these principles are missing from the black hermeneutic because their method considers principles of subjective history as opposed to objective grammar. It is also missing the presence of the Holy Spirit to give light to the preacher, list, and read of scripture. Instead, what it does, it reads the struggles of life and then it proof texts those struggles with scripture. Consequently, instead of drawing from the text, which is what we would call exegesis, it reads into the text, which we will call eisegesis. And then it imposes a meaning that the divine and human authors never intended. Now, let me tie this all together by saying that the method of the black hermeneutic is a clever way to describe the black liberation theology, heresy, where the oppressed and the oppressor are the prominent participants in the narrative of scripture. 
So the presupposition is not scripture is God's word to us, revealing himself and his will. It's, it's scripture is, is the word of God that reveals our struggle and identifies your oppressed with your oppressor. So black hermeneutics reads scripture through the lens of experience, through the lens of oppression and suffering. It is on a very horizontal plane. It is not from God to us, and then we worship God. It is not vertical, it is on a horizontal plane. Now, I will say that there are a few examples before we actually get into the sermon that Dates preached because this is a very important uh, foundation. They, as you make just a casual look at Dates, after you look at Black Liberation, Heresy, and, and Black Hermeneutics, that you will find that, that are consistent in pointing us to the fact that the issues are a matter of interpretation, as such as the, the, the over-consumption of experience being the determining factor for how we read and understand and apply the scripture. In fact, the focus tends to be more on application, but yet the interpretation has not been fully fleshed out. Well, let me just say this. First of all, one caution is that Pastor Date's interpretation of scripture and his leadership leads him in the wrong direction. One of them is about Dr. Martin Luther King's beliefs and also women in ministry. He endorses the preaching of women and Beth Moore actually spoke at one of his Sunday live stream services. So, you know, there are some issues there. He also, and I'll come to this again, he also believed that King was a gospel preacher. And we know that King was not a gospel preacher. And he says this. And I quote, he said this, he says, we or blacks have probably done evangelicalism a, um, better than most people who claim to be evangelical. And then he goes on to say that the problem is with the white part of white evangelicalism. So now you, you hear a little bit of conism there and, and black liberation. It, it is making a distinction, not, not a dividing of the joints and marrow, it's dividing uh, of, of melanin, less or more. Dates also claims that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood against the sins in his then preached the gospel. As I said before, King preached a different gospel because he believed in a different Christ. He also believed, Dates, Pastor Dates also believes that there are two pulpits. That's not theological, that's not biblical, that's conism, that's black liberation, that's uh, that, that's in the line of, of black hermeneutics. There's the black pulpit and the rest. He says that the black pulpit will help America to reckon with her past and the possibility of her present. And I'm saying that almost verbatim to what he said. So you find that that is that caution that I presented to you is the backdrop for his sermon or his TED talk. Now, look at his handling of Jesus's high priestly prayer. His introduction says that the Lord's Prayer here is for protective custody. He never really explained what that is. I would say I'm not a big fan of that phrase, but I get it. He's interceding for, for his disciples, the apostles, and also he will intercede for those who obey the teaching of the apostles, for the Father's care, for them to be kept. Uh, that, 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 in essence, is true. So I guess that's what protective custody points to. But then he says this, when... We give our faith to God for salvation. God then gives us to his son for safekeeping. And I know he's trying to break it down in the most simplest form. So I get what he's saying there. I may have said it differently, but once again, 
I won't um, scrutinize that too much. But then he says, and I quote, although we live, although we give, that is, although we give the gift of our faith to the Son of God, the deeper fact at work in this prayer is that the Father gives his Son as a gift to us. There's an element of truth to that, absolutely, because uh, the scripture says in, in Ephesians chapter 1 that, that Christ has been gifted to the church as his head. And that is something that the church should be humbled by and, and glorify God in. Not because it has some special attractive features to it. It is just that God was gracious and is gracious to the church because he loves his son. And then he asks the question, what does the prayer about protection in John 17 have to do with the unity of the church? Dates answers by saying emphatically everything, everything. He says that we are the singular instrument for the coming of God's kingdom in the earth. The church is the only institution that proclaims the divinity of Christ. So Jesus's prayer is a petition for shelter for positional unity. Jesus prays, again, he says, for witness protection, which it's hard for me to read it, but I'm just going by what he says. Uh, keep the disciple to fidelity to the faith so that we will one day be one as Christ and the Father is one. So the oneness, he says, of the church is the burden of Christ in his closing prayer. Because unity is an indivisible representation of the character of God. Not mere theological assent, albeit theological assent is necessary, but the practical living out of this unity. So now, the idea is that our faithfulness to the revelation Jesus gave us ought to produce a visible unity and oneness in the world. And that was kind of like his connection point. Maybe, maybe his thesis there. Our faithfulness to the revelation Jesus gave us ought to produce a visible unity and oneness in the world. But Dade says, but we got a problem. We're divided. And then, ironically, instead of explaining the text, which might help us understand unity and maybe going to Ephesians as an illustration, he actually refers to subjective history. Now, those events in history were true, but how we interpret that history is a different matter. There, there are some aspects of history where the church failed to do the right thing. In slavery, many pastors failed. Uh, in, in desegregation or during segregation, many churches failed. Some did not. Some stood up. Some preached the truth. As in slavery, many godly men loathed Chattel slavery. They hated it. We don't hear about them as much because the narrative, it doesn't help the narrative. That is why this is subjective. But he goes to the subjective standard and he refers to 1619 slavery, failure on the Puritans, and then he talks about colonial theology, which is a tricky phrase. So when we talk about colonial theology and even the meaning of words, I'm finding it out that we cannot assume we define words the same way. But let me give you a, a probably I think a quick or simple definition for colonial theology and it comes from Mark Knowles's book and the book is America's God from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln America's God from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln he says that theologians or he wrote that theologians dominated the public square in colonial America colonial theologians emphasized the importance of historic confessions and creeds and viewed 
hierarchical social structures as God-given. Now, it didn't mean that they viewed them all the same way because there's some structures like government and others that they're God's ministers, but not, not every social structure is good. So that's what we have to define those structures biblically. Does this structure line up with the Christian doctrine, the Christian teaching? Do we find, do we find a, an, an Old Testament equivalent in the New Testament that that helps us maybe understand something in the Old Testament that we, we may not see as clearly. So, so we, when we think of structures, socially structured, social structures, some of them are very helpful. We'll say that on a social level, a government uh, is a necessary, a necessary structure because of sin. And it is a, it is a mercy that God gives to us. Uh, those ministers to curb sinful appetites and to exercise justice. So there were some who say, well, okay, but when we look at this, this argument uh, of, of colonial theology, we would say that, yes, that's true, but many of them use that to justify slavery. Well, now we're using the scripture to justify CRT, where we're using Christianity to justify social justice. We're doing the same thing, albeit in a different way. In other words, we're now attacking those who we think attacked us, although the ones who attacked us are deceased and the ones who were attacked, they're deceased. So there is a theological conundrum here that is eerily similar to what was done many years ago. The other problem, though, is that whenever we, we talk about historical topics without an explanation, it leaves uh, the audience to think the worst. But there's some kinks in Date's presentation of, of um, slavery, the Puritans and their failure, or colonial theology. There, there was some failure. Let's not get that wrong. These men were sinners saved by the grace of God. There may have been others who weren't even saved at all. But now let's look at today and how we're approaching this. Is this biblical or theological? Well, one of my response would be that the argument over division since slavery, right? He says, well, since slavery, the black and the white churches have been divided. Well, that's not really, that's not totally accurate. That is totally subjective, I think, or a, a good degree of subjectivity, subjectivity to it. And the reason why I say that is because we cannot determine if American, if those who were enslaved, who first came from Africa, we can't determine if they were saved or not. There's no way to tell if they were Chantel Christians, that those slaves who came over from Africa were saved. We, we, we have no proof of that from our recollection. So the issue of unity between African-Americans or Africans in the church became a problem after the fact, after subsequent years of slaves maybe hearing more and more about the gospel and coming to salvation. So, so going back to 1619, does John 17 a disservice? Because it is subjective and there are many questionable aspects about that statement, which would say there's probably insufficient validity for us to actually use it. One of the things that we always, we're always told in seminary is that uh, if you don't have proof of a context, something that is outside of the scripture, um, a historical context that you, you know does not come from a reliable uh, source, don't use it. Well, there's another deal breaker, another issue, and this one is more recent. And it was the white evangelicals' acceptance uh, of the 45th president, Donald Trump, uh, claiming that Trump is a racist, misogynist, and xenophobic. Now, we have to really think about that carefully. I have not necessarily heard Trump say that. Um, 
about racism. I'm not saying that he has he may not have issues of partiality. He he does, we all do to some degree. So these these blanket charges against a man who never openly confessed it, it's is once again raising false accusation. It is a false witness. It's a false witness. It is the very same rhetoric that the critical race theorists were saying, that basketball coaches were saying, and these basketball coaches are depraved men. To that extent, the Leave Loud movement actually began after the 2000 election, 2016 election. And the Leave Loud movement was the, the departure of black evangelicals who were disturbed by the public surge of support toward Donald Trump. And so this, this support by Donald Trump, by white evangelicals, um, provoked men like Jamar Tisby. And so they called for a war. They said, don't leave quietly. The war was to not leave peaceably or in silence, which really is godly. Instead, when you go, just, just show the dirty laundry, expose the dirty laundry, share your story. And it is your story, it's your perception. It does, it does mean it's true. It doesn't mean that the people supported Trump or unbelievers or didn't love God or they were Christian nationalists. These were speculations and, and once again, false accusations against fellow believers. But the goal was to make it public. And part of the reason is that we know today that narratives, stories, experiences of celebrating melanized humanity is preferred. It's the new king on, on the throne. But then another recent issue had to do with the insurrection in Washington, D.C. by so-called Christians with American flags. Here, once again, false accusations that there is a Christianized society in America claiming to be Christians, but they're really loyal to America, that they may not be Christians. But because they have crosses and nooses, we are certain that these are Trump supporters and they're radicals and they call themselves Christians. But sadly, that event, in that event, you had a mixture of those who supported Trump at the rally and also you had Antifa. You had extremists and fringe groups who may or not have been a violent threat. You also had supporters of Trump because he had a rally who did not necessarily participate in that. And then there were no shots fired, so it wasn't extremely violent except by an agent who shot a woman who had no gun and she died. Of course, we don't hear that in the news. It should have been an outcry. And say, well, she had no business being in that building. Well, a lot of, uh, quote, black guys have no business not listening to the cops. And yet we still cry out, this is unjust. The hypocrisy is so, so apparent. In fact, those who died... Uh, or mostly Trump supporters. Furthermore, let's be careful. Dates is wrong here. This was at a Christian event and we must distinguish religious zealous from the church. There must be a distinction between those who are zealots and religious and those who have a zeal for Christ and are regenerated. There is a difference. And when fellow Christians categorize their brothers and sisters in Christ with some of these movements, they're doing a disservice to the work of Christ on the cross. So, you know, with Gates, I find a problem of conflating the two and not making a theological distinction between them. Once more, these are claims someone is making, claiming Trump being racist, claiming that the Christians causing an uproar and not verified as fact that those who claim to be Christians truly know the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Or to be clear, if Trump is guilty of racism, we can say the same of Biden. We can say the same of a lot of people, including, quote, black people. And we may observe, and we may by observation conclude that many in America who claim to be Christians may have never heard the good news. They did not know that God's law does not grade like their favorite professor on a curve. You break one of God's law and, and it says that you're guilty of all. That is where the good news declares the work of the sinless Savior for sinners. For the forgiveness of sins and right standing with God by faith alone in Christ. That's the Christian message. And let me just say this. Respectfully that I, and sadly, I did not hear the good news from Pastor Dates during his TED talk. Did not hear it as a foundation of the sermon, during the sermon, or after the sermon. The gospel must be at the foundation of our preaching. If you're not hearing the gospel as a foundation, I'm not saying he has to give the, the, the full evangelical sermon, but he must allude to, he must declare the goodness of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in some form, in some way, so that those who listen would know that there's only one way for men to have life, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. We refresh our congregations when we declare the gospel and we also convict the false convert and we certainly convict the unbelieving audience when we declare the guilt of the sinner and the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what our gospel message declares. And I think when we declare it with great joy, these matters become more trivial. When we, we speak of the coming of the Son of God to earth, God incarnate, truly God, truly man, who lived, died, and was buried, God raised him on the third day for our justifications and sinners turning from their sin unto God, trusting, placing their confidence now in none other than the perfect Savior who fulfilled God's perfect law and satisfied God's just wrath so that they may be saved. And what is ironic his pastor date said much about the gospel, but did little to preach the actual gospel itself. And for him to even put Martin Luther King Jr. in the category of a gospel preaches an indictment on, on what he believes. That needs to be clarified. But then you, as I'm talking about John 17 and pastor date's sermon, you can see that he has already departed from the prayer. There's really no deep explanation. So at the 10 minute mark of his sermon, which is actually the 50 minute mark of the entire service, he's going off into the world of critical race theory, the black hermeneutic, black liberation theology. And, and it's turning into a CRT critical rubric analysis for change or CRT's critical rubric as a catalyst for change. Not the prayer, not the power of the spirit of God, but a secular, ungodly ideology. And so at this point, it seemed to me as I listened, and I listened twice, that he has abandoned the context and its focus, and he's using a black hermeneutic of oppressed versus the oppressor to build his argument. And so he's going to answer why we're not together, and it's not according to the prayer in John 17. I mean, you can close your Bibles and describe a CRT manual, a critical race theory manual, and, and you will follow what he's saying. This is so clear. Date says, number one, 
the reason why we're, we're not together, it's not because the spirit is not working and none of these things, is that there's a breakup over silence. A breakup over silence. And where is that silence causing disunity? Whenever the white evangelicals downplay injustice. When they downplay it. Now the downplaying could be, hey, we weren't there. We don't know. And there are crimes being committed everywhere. Our heart goes out to the people who are dying, but our heart goes out to all who are dying. That's, that's insufficient. That's downplaying it. This is deeply incriminating because you're accusing someone who, whose conscience cannot bring them to a point of just blanketly saying that this is racist. So this breakup, once again, is a critical race theory analysis. You're, you're approaching the problem based on the fact that in every system, in every structure, there's racism. And so the solution cannot be the prayer that Jesus prayed of the Bible. The second reason he gives as to why there's a breakup is that white pulpits, by and large, and I'm saying this almost verbatim. It's not fully quoted, but I did my best. He says, white pulpits, by and large, will not stand up and declare the lineage of slavery and the lingering effects of slavery to be tearing us apart. Let me just say now, these are my thoughts. That is very subjective and falls in line with black liberation theology. It is a general accusation and it is not true for everyone. Therefore, it is a false accusation. But yet general and false accusations are not out of bounds in black liberation theology or CRT. And he's employing that. He's saying white pulpits. He didn't say the church down the street or a couple of people that I know because there have been some pulpits denouncing it sadly in the wrong way. In fact, I read a report by a pastor just locally after the George Floyd incident. I mean, he went on a tirade and he was wrong on several accounts trying to denounce the lingering effects of slavery, but he did it in the wrong way. And I would say that pastors are not, who are biblical, are not endorsing or affirming slavery is a good thing if they're, if they're biblical men, if they're men of the scripture. It is just that this statement is unusual because you could never say it enough for them. And I'd like to think that the pulpits they're referring to are probably one of the larger popular ones and not all the pulpits in general, but still they're, they're making a claim that white pulpits, that distinction, that is racist if we want to use that term. It is not biblical. A third reason for the breakup is that there's a failure to admit the 250 year head start white America's population has. This is, this is terrible. It lacks substance and spiritual conviction because I have subjective thoughts on this. And there was a study that someone did that the head start is really not accurate because from generation to generation, it really depends on how much work you put in. You say, well, you know, we don't have access to libraries. Well, they're public libraries now. But instead of the public libraries uh, teaching principles, the public libraries are being used to indoctrinate. And they're bringing in perverted men dressed like women to, to, to twist and affect our young people. Education is going down and the problem is, is not the 250 year head start. It is an issue of education. It's an issue of information. This is wrong. Okay, now dates, he will transition to a, a subcategory of this breakup over silence. Um, to say that our contemporary problems, it does prove my point, is, is what he was driving at. He says that there is a persistent silence on current issues. Once more, that is not true. It's just that what some are saying is not in agreement with what they want. Here's the point. 
in, in social justice and in critical race theory, if you do not go according to their knowledge, then what you're saying is wrong and unacceptable. It's, you can't have an alternate opinion. You can't have an opposing argument. That persistent silence is not that men are being silent as much as men are not speaking up the way that they want them to speak up. This is horrible. Well, then, you know, how, how is this resolved? How can we resolve it? And this argument will come up later in his speech, but he says that we need the white population to look at the extending effects of slavery. He said this earlier. But once more, that changes nothing, and it has done nothing to change anyone. It, it makes, quote, black people, I think some of the unbelieving black people, even more angry. But to say the extending effects of slavery does not help us address the problem. We address the problem by assessing what is needed, not what was not done in the past, but what is needed today. Um, he says that we need to remove slave owners' names from seminary institutions. Once again, that's not in the prayer. He's, he left the prayer. This is a TED talk now. This is a black lib talk. It's a black hermeneutic. We're oppressed. We, we, we can't think about what Jesus said to say in his prayer. Remove slave owners' names from seminary institutions. There were some seminary leaders, great leaders, who either agreed with slavery or they may have had slaves. Even some pastors did. He wants those names removed as if that's going to heal someone. This is self-incriminating. The, the other is to add more black professors on staff. Now, I'm fine for that if it's adding qualified professors. Because Dates believed that Martin Luther King Jr. was a gospel man. Are these men gospel men who are being added? Are these faithful men of the word who are being added? These conditions are based not on criteria, but on critical race theory. On social justice. Not on the word of God. But if... Though, quote, white evangelicals remain unwilling to make these moves, unity is impossible. It won't happen. But sadly, what he demands comes not from God, but from the very lips of depraved men. And he's adopted depraved tactics. So, you know, we just looked at the first cause for disunity, and he says it's a breakup of a silence, and then the subcategory is our persistent or the white evangelicals' persistent silence on current issues. But the second one, he says that we need to change the way we read history, because if we read history correctly, blacks are genuinely disadvantaged and whites are advantaged. Now, he did elaborate this one a little bit more, and he, uh, I will quote from him. He says, people are running from faith in God because of the way he is painted. That is, God is painted by certain sectors in the church. Um, but according to Romans chapter three, people run from God because of their sin. No one runs from the faith because of what Christians are doing directly. We're sinners saved by the grace of God. We should be examples. That's what discipleship is for. That's what preaching is for. But that is not the chief reason. People find reasons or excuses to run from the church because of what they see. But the real reason is that they're dead in their sin. Ephesians chapter 3. No one seeks after God. In fact, we're like fugitives, as R.C. Sproul said. We would rather run from God in our sin than run to God to be forgiven of our sin until God gives us life. 
Well, Dates also stated that, and I quote, black pulpits in my read of history are in the best position to redeem the soul of American history. This is incredible. Well, does that, that doesn't sound good, does it to you? Listen, it is said by critical race theory that the most qualified people to speak on the issue in America are blacks and the white people just need to basically shut up and listen. He's adopting that in a, in a mild form, in a subtle form, but it is clear when you evaluate both sides, when he says that black pulpits in my read of history is in the best position to redeem the soul of American history. That's another CRT Apple card. It immediately disqualifies pulpits, and listen to this, it immediately disqualifies pulpits of faithful, quote, white preachers, not based on their faithfulness to scripture. The criteria is no longer biblical but on the subset base of melanin or race, which as I've argued before is a made up category anyway. But then Dates shows that there's something going on here. I can't judge him, but something's going on. He adamantly demands that white evangelicals denounce Trump, denounce him. The 180 plus million white Republicans who voted for Trump must denounce their vote and says we were wrong. Then who you to vote for? It, it is up to the believer to choose to choose wisely, biblically, righteously, and make sure that their conscience has been informed by the word of God. And free from the encumbrance of this material world, you don't want a better America so you can live comfortably. You want to vote for the right person because right before God's eyes brings him glory. Someone votes and they think that that leader uh, upholds life, integrity, truth, justice, you vote for that person. On the flip side, uh, our current president needs our prayers because he's doing the very opposite. It is, he opened up the door to, to brutal uh, abortions, which are murders, and his actions are in line of, of, of someone who we see truly hates the gospel and our Lord. It has nothing to do with the, the, the Democrat or Republican platform as much as what they believe or at least what they uphold. But here's another quote from his pulpit talk. At the roots of Americanized Christianity, he calls it Americanized Christianity, there is a racialized construction that pits one group upon, or I think he meant against another. Okay, Americanized Christianity is not the same as biblical Christianity, and those distinctions must be made. They were not. It's lumping every white American in one sense under this category because that's what critical race theory does. It attacks Christianity at its roots and gives it these derogatory titles. Dates also says, and I quote, since we had to read about God from the margins of the page, in other words, we didn't have full access to the Bible. We can now turn to our world and says, now that you are on the margins, look at how we learned about God. Once again, this is a glorified version of CRT that says, we are more qualified because we had less and did more. But now that we have more, you guys really need us. You guys need to be quiet. White people, shh, and listen. Just stop talking. You've been talking for years and you misuse the Bible. Yes, faithful expositor, you, should, you need to be quiet too. Because why? Because you're white. And someone even said in my Facebook post that they don't believe people who come from a certain seminary anymore because of this connection to white supremacy, which that, that actually was a baseless accusation. Nevertheless, it's not about the truth and the character of this person's life, but somehow is it attached, his attachment to something historically that he wasn't a part of. 
that is critical race theory. It's not interested in the truth as such. And dates is off on, on, on this diatribe that is not based on absolute objective truth. This is dangerous. This is dangerous. Of course, he did not explain dates, did not explain what those margins are, but what he intends is for everyone to be monolithic and read history the same way. You must read history the same way as we did, and you must read the present the same way as we are. No. What he's saying is that the white population needs to interpret things according to the black hermeneutic, according to James Cone. Because they had access to the Bible and yet did less with it. But the blacks had less and did more without it. That's a false dichotomy. That's pitting saying that because you knew less, you still did well. Now that you know more, you can do better. How about seeing that as a mercy? That even in our ignorance, in the old days, our, our parents and our forefathers and those before, they didn't have full access, didn't understand everything, but they truly loved God. Is that not a mercy? How could we use the mercy now as an implement to destroy others? It's a failure to understand history God's way. And I would assert that that is probably an issue with, with Pastor Dates and others who uphold CRT and social justice. Number three, he says that we're also divided over money. Uh, he said that in 1660, to keep the prophets going, they did not baptize slaves because it meant equality after baptism. And that would have an impact on, on economics. So they decided not to baptize or to talk about the Lord. So because of money, they adopted subhuman categories. He also used Richard Baxter as an example. Uh, he says that as a Puritan, Baxter would approve of uh, the soul of a slave needing salvation, but did nothing to contribute to that person's freedom from human slavery. Or Cotton Mayer, he said, would ask God to bless him with a good slave. So apparently in that time, Slaves were gifted to preachers. And, uh, you know, as Dates is saying this, and I'm just quote, I'm just saying this. I'm just telling what he's saying. I'm not going to hide any of it. But he gives no source for the accounts, and I'm not going to say I don't trust him. But the summary is that he asserts white money and the love of money is in the Christian church. Once more, this is hor a horrific accusation. White money and the love of money what happened in the past is still happening today. That's CRT. There's no way to get rid of this structural love of money, this structural white money. You, you'll never get rid of it because it's etched in your history and it's in your DNA. You'll never be freed from this in sanctification. It's, it's a part of who you are. Your melanin is the reason why it will not go away. This is antithetical to the good news and, and the hope of, of putting off these sins and the hope of finally putting off these sins in the future glory. But you're beginning to see how black hermeneutics works along with CRT and social justice within a sermon or TED talk. It is nothing but black liberation theology. It is bearing false witness and saying the white churches in general without making any specific claims that they're lovers of money and power. Now, as we talk about all this, I think it's good to, to review some meaning of words or meanings of words. Um, for example, we've been talking about CRT, or critical race theory, and um, critical race theory charges that America is structurally racist, that institutions, organizations, even the church, that there's racism 
within the very fabric, the DNA of this nation. It was built on racism. It thrived on racism. So every structure is racist. And the only way to cure its racist structure is to replace white power with black power and dismantle America's current power structure. So it's the total undoing of America. And people say, oh, we just need reform. They don't want reform. They want destruction. They don't want regulations. They want annihilation. In fact, it also says that the only racists in our world are white people and they can never be forgiven for their whiteness, but they can work to help fight against their own in inherent racism and the racism around them. In other words, there's no forgiveness for this at all. This can never die slowly or quickly. It will always be with you because you are white. And if you listen to some of what Pastor Date said, he's in, he's employing and engaging with the problem and also he misuses Jesus's prayer to support these premises these ideologies in that, in fact the ideologies were actually superior to the scripture because he spent more time talking about them than the text itself there's also another category of woke people um, according to to this structure a paradigm you have two types of people you have the guilty white population that's the first type and the second type would be the woke population so that the guilty white population are probably not aware of their racism their prejudice only the woke people are so only the woke people have the power to speak on these things and what makes someone woke has to do with their awareness of what other people may not see I see your implicit bias, even though you don't see it. I see your racism, even though I don't see it. You don't see it. It's there. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Because I said it. And the reason why I can see it is because I'm woke. So if you're woke, you see the hidden bias in our nation's systems, structure, even onto racism in the church. Now, and, and a, a tragic example is that the church may believe that sexual sins are wrong and God hates them. A woke Christian is sympathetic to the marginalized, including homosexuals, or what the scripture calls them as they are sodomites. You know, God's word tells us to wake from our spiritual slumber, but the woke are sleeping spiritually and they're growing numb to sin. It's dangerous. Social justice is another one, and social justice is a fight similar to CRT. It is to undo the traditional values in America because they believe that those values are oppressive. The second phase in social justice is to evenly distribute power and material resources from the oppressor's control to the oppressed. So it is not retributive justice, paying back someone for their actions. It's distributive. I'm going to give you resources, material resources. That's justice. And, and that is not biblical. And then the goal is not equality of opportunity, that we have the same opportunity to achieve whatever end God designs, is that we want the same outcome no matter how much work we put into it. But then how's, how does that compare to biblical justice when you think about biblical justice and social justice? Well, I believe this was very helpful from uh, Scott David Allen uh, in his book, um, Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice. Uh, Scott David Allen says that um, biblical justice is conformity to God's moral standard as revealed in the Ten Commandments and the royal law, which the royal law is love your neighbor as yourself. And then Alan goes on to distinguish two aspects of biblical justice. One is commutative justice and the other is distributive justice. Commutative justice is living in right relationship with God and others, giving people their due as image bearers of God. 
Distributive justice means impartially rendering judgment, righting wrongs, and meeting out punishment for law-breaking. It is reserved for God and God-ordained authorities, including parents in the home, elders in the church, teachers in the school, and civil authorities in the state. But what you find here in contrast is that what Pastor Dates and other black pastors who support CRT work as a social justice, it is a display of the very racism and bondage that America imposed upon African slaves. It is a different form of slavery and bondage. It is built on hate, bitterness, unforgiveness, scripture twisting. And it is no advancing the true gospel. When you think of, of social justice and biblical justice, it's two separate worlds. You're looking at men who are, who are speaking from an atheistic structure, that's dividing the church, who are promoting these ideologies. To that extent, there is a social justice page on Progressive Baptist Church's website, but their social justice is not biblical justice. It's antithetical to it. Antithetical to it. This form of justice now I'll quote from Scott David Allen, it is the tearing down of traditional structures and systems deemed to be oppressive and the redistribution of power and resources from oppressors to victims of equality of outcome. It is a power grabbing, purse snatching, life destroying enemy of truth and justice. Okay, now we gotta talk about dates. Date says that there's a way out of this. There's a way for us to escape this. Um, we, we can get out, he says, but listen to how he approaches it. He says, we must speak. We must speak on the deaths of blacks. And I would say, no, we don't have to. Uh, if we do that every Sunday, we, we won't be preaching expositionally. And we'll be talking to some specific people groups and their deaths occurring. Not only are blacks being shot by cops, but what about the black on black crimes? If we did that every Sunday, we would not have time to preach. What about the 15 plus million abortions? Well, these are murders. And, and most of your abortion murder mills are in those urban neighborhoods. And I don't hear these urban passes calling for them to go away. There's an issue in speaking on this because it is, it is partial. It is critical race theory. It's attacking structures of authority as if they're to blame. But when he makes a point here about this, you will see his notice, noticeable departure from scripture. And he says this without compromise. And I'll quote this. If we have to act like the disadvantages between us are cultural, are not systemic. You notice that? He says we have a problem. If, if, we, 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 if we cannot agree that these are systemic issues, then, then we can't agree. We got to speak on these issues as systemic. In other words, you, you can't just say that the death on black is a problem. You have to say it's a systemic problem. This is a dangerous thing. He says that 80% of white evangelicals refuse to break their racist, their, not their bond with the Republican Party only, but their racist bond with the Republican Party, and that is a requirement for unity. I've said this once before, but he calls it a racist bond. That cannot be proven that 80% of white evangelicals have a racist bond to the party. These are, these are hurling accusations against fellow believers. This is racist. Quote, end quote. He goes on to say that we need plaques, names, pictures removed from prominent and past spiritual leaders who were slave owners. 
gotta be removed. There's no unity of this. That's not done. And then he goes back to another point is more blacks in places of leadership to have unity. Once again, these are unbiblical, unscriptural qualifications to unite the black and the white churches. This is not from God. This is from men. This is this is from an atheistic, unbiblical, Marxist worldview. Not a biblical worldview. This is extremely dangerous. And he's saying that these are absolutes. In other words, these are deal breakers. These are must-haves. We must have these unbiblical demands that our Savior said nothing of in his prayer. And as an extension of this argument, the social justice commandment to white pastors and leaders is thou must be quiet. You know, I said it earlier that the shrewd statement by dates that blacks are more qualified to speak and to preach. It is from the gospel according to social justice. Never mind the pastor is white and he speaks the word of God. And he's faithful to the single meaning of the text in ways I will argue, I can argue clearly, and I have, that Dates refused to explain the single meaning of the text. It was not exposition at all. He was unfaithful to it from my standpoint. But because he's white, he's not qualified. That is what is known as standpoint epistemology. Standpoint epistemology. Minorities are the only ones capable of speaking to the issues today, especially that of racism, to include racial discrimination in the church. So according to that standpoint epistemology, the only hope for the evangelical church is not the gospel alone, not the spirit of God through the preaching of the gospel, but it is the work of the black pastor. Wow. All right, now to some preliminary uh, conclusions. We need to make sure that men like Dates and, and other men, I'm not questioning their, their salvation or their love for the Lord, but um, I am certainly questioning their authenticity when it comes to spiritual things. And the many people who are there misleading with these arguments of hate, it needs to be exposed. And I will say that Dates has strong leanings toward critical race theory and black liberation theology. And the evidence was not in how he explained John 17. The evidence is how he departed from John 17 and he went straight into the rhetoric of the world, the rhetoric of CRT, the rhetoric of social justice. And I gave you some examples and clearly in my examples, it is plain to see that this affects the way you preach. It affects the way you think. It, it, seems like it's sweet water but it is not it's bitter water but the soul that is so bitter thinks it's sweet i mean you can lose your taste buds to the point where anything tastes good to you well it has no taste at all so it seems nutritious this is a very dangerous place to be he took the route that that many woke pastors are taking today he abandoned the single original meaning he asserted critical race theory's hermeneutic of structural racism his implications were from the gospel according to social justice when getting even, according to social justice, getting even is the only way to unity and reconciliation. And he applied the remedy that not only disqualified godly men who are, quote, white, but disqualified the scriptures, the final authority for faith and practice. When you listen to what he said in his TED talk, it should have been a sermon, and compared to CRT, intersectionality, wokeness, whiteness, and social justice, you will see that the sermon is not Christ-honoring but it uplifts humanity in all the wrong ways. I'll also say that 
My second closing argument is that Dates is wrong on his assertions. What he's asserting from John 17 is not consistent with the prayer of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's imposing upon the text to defend his argument because in John 17, there are a specific group of people Christ refers to. First, according to verses 6 and 20 of John 17 that were given to him by the Father, they're his. They're united in Christ. They're united together and they belong to Christ. So, as a very core truth, the basis of unity and its life is for all who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. They belong to him and are united to him and each other. If we ever begin by what we see among Christians in the church, we will not see the unity of essence or a fellowship that Christ prayed for. Yes, it is true. By this men will know that you're my disciples if you have loved one for another. Yet that truth does not contradict that to love one another presupposes that we are in Christ as first priority or order of things. In his book, The, Unit, the Basis of Unity, The Basis of Unity by Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, he notes this, and, and I quote, that the subjects of the unity of which our Lord is speaking are not those who happen to have been brought up in a certain country or happen to belong to a given race of nation or particular church. They are those who have received his word, his teaching, and particularly who he is, that he has been sent by God and that he has been sent to do this work for them. So the condition met is one of receiving Christ or believing that God sent Christ on your behalf. So unity is a fundamental theological truth. And as a fundamental theological truth, it rests and thrives on the person and the work of Christ. I will argue that Pastor Charlie Dates made the fatal error of setting not goals for unity, but hindrances to unity, he says he longs for, because his goal for unity is the antithesis or the opposite of what the Savior prayed for. And in the words of Dr. Dear Carson, he says that the unity among believers models the splendor of the unity between the Father and the Son. It is already given to us. Now we are called to maintain it and pursue it. But to say we have to have something based on human and natural conditions miss the point of the Spirit's work in enabling us to live in harmony together because this unity is first of all positional and permanent how we maintain it is a very important part of the conversation but to say we're not united is a priority beginning with man and that is what black liberation theology does that is what the black hermeneutic does it's wrong we are to glory in the power of god to unite irreconcilable people to god the father and then to each other but another conclusion is that we, we must shine the light on Dates' use of critical race theory, intersectionality, social justice as measurements for unity. Because we realize that unity is not obtained. Unity is maintained, Ephesians 4 verse 3. Another fallacy in, in this unity that Dates long for is that it severs itself from its source. It has nothing to do with God, but it has something to do with experience or earthly relationships, which are, are the byproduct of God uniting us together. It is not the root of unity, it's just the fruit of it. He wants to grow the fruit without the root. This unity that we have in Christ flows from the infinite greatness and perfection of our God. And it is also unity that we share because of our, of our life in union with Christ. 
So if we adopt Charlie Day's approach uh, to John 17 and his requirements for change, the gospel's work in uniting sinners to God and each other is contingent upon structural changes, not a supernatural spiritual work of the Spirit of God. Now, according to his preaching, our way out is no longer biblical then. It's social. And by the process of deduction, the final authority is not the scripture, but critical race theory. Instead of, instead of the Christ who redeems and transforms, which is the, is the CRT we need. I, I'll take a CRT. I'll take a Christ redeeming and transforming people CRT. Not the critical race theory that says that all white people are without hope, without forgiveness, without help. And they'd be structured, including the churches, without help. Even as God is sanctifying the church today, and the church has also moved on in, in, in its, its blatant history of, of um, segregation, and not every church practices, but you see this consistency of the churches, the diversity in the churches. That's not enough because critical race theory is not based on heart changes. It's based on superficial structural changes in human dominance. It is ungodly. I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 1 that says that those who live a united life live a life that is worthy of the gospel and that they stand side by side holding their position and they're fighting against the same enemy it doesn't mean that we celebrate conformity it's a unity of essence not of conformity we're not all we're not all going to think the same we're not going to always agree on the same thing i mean there's no equity of intelligence because God gives us differently. There's no equity of athleticism. The Olympics will not award first place to every team, including the losing team. There's a winner and a loser. They're never equity of outcome in competition. It will be morally wrong, ethically wrong to do so. Conformity of persons to think the same way, to think that CRT or because I'm black, I should think one way or another. That's not Christianity, that's communism. That's manipulation, that's control, that's not theological. But there's one thing that we should agree on that Jesus Christ is Lord of the church and we should fight the spiritual battles that we see around us. The good fight is the fight of faith. We should stand arm hand in hand in this, this battle. Something else to consider is that unity is the work of the spirit. It's the spirit of God who brings this reality to us and enables us to live in unity. And then as a warning to our leaders, be careful that you do not exceed or surpass your will as a Bible teacher, as a table waiter. Unity is bound to our life in Christ, not external matters. And as a result of our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our reconciler, our wisdom from God, he's also our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Now let me just state my call to action. And I am done. After reviewing Pastor Date's message, which turned into a TED talk as a sample of past, present, and future woke or CRT talks. Are you convinced just how dangerous this method is? I do trust that you are. But now, what if you tend to fellowship like this, that the that pastor continues to leave the text and launches into social justice and CRT is his new model? But first, let me ask you to pray earnestly for your leaders. Spend a season in prayer. Secondly, read trustworthy resources. And I have just maybe a few of them that I think are very helpful. One is Fault Lines by Vodibakum. 
The other is Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice by Scott David Allen. Now, the third I would recommend is Social Justice Goes to Church by John Harris. Our brother, Owen Straka and Dr. Owen Straka, and he's doing, he's, a book should be due soon. I would recommend that one to Christianity and Wokeness, but it is not out yet. But if you prefer to listen to another podcast, I, I highly recommend Just Thinking Podcast by Daryl Harrelson, Virgin Walker. So listen to these resources, read the books, do your homework, then go to your leaders and, and lay out your argument respectfully and graciously. Shine the light of truth on the grave sin that this movement is enacting to repent. This is a dangerous move. This is a dangerous movement. And let them know clearly, this is what this movement is. It is, it is satanic. It is anti-gospel. It is a work of the adversary. Look, Christians can get tossed to and fro, including preachers. It is sound doctrine that, that rescues us and, and hems us in. Give them sound truth that clearly articulates that the model of CRT is affecting the explanation of the scripture. Ask them to repent and change from that course of direction. And if they refuse to do so, work on a plan of exit from that fellowship. Yes, you have to leave at some point. Do not leave loud. You don't have to broadcast it online. That is totally unnecessary and not righteous. Instead, graciously and peacefully warn other believers in that fellowship that this movement is heretical. Encourage them to consider going to their leaders and also have a good, godly plan of exit. It's always good to look for another church in the area before you do that. Don't go searching after you leave. Look around before you leave. And may the Lord continue to impart to us the wisdom and humility to confront these assaults against the gospel and the church because they are what they are, enemies of Christ, enemies of the gospel, enemies of love, enemies of truth. And because we love the church, we cannot stand down. We love the men tossed by this wind of doctrine and are warning them to flee from this spiritual cancer. Because when you're bitter, bitter words and bitter causes in response and reaction are sweet to the taste, but they're destructive for the soul. Flee from it, run. Do not be like Lot's wife who looked back. Do not look back. This movement is ungodly and it has not the glory of God in view. Do not let this bitterness of CRT, this hatred of social justice, that social justice that is promotes. No longer, I pray, let it be sweet to your soul. May Christ and Christ alone be the sweetness to your soul. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Seymour Heligar, and this is the Pastor Soapbox. May the Lord continually bless you for his glory and your good in Christ's name.